I'm probably gonna have to sleep on the plane on Friday and then again on Sunday. I have basically gotten no sleep all week. I'm a hundred percent a plane sleeper. Um, in fact, I I can go the night before late thinking, eh, I'll get a couple hours on the plane and I'll be fine. Most people or some people uh, think that's insane. It could be insane. One of the reasons I like to take the first flight out in the morning if I'm traveling is because, A, that flight is always going to be on time. You're almost never going to come up with a flight crew that suddenly gets timed out and you get stranded somewhere. Uh, But also, you know, I just basically get myself awake enough to get there, settle into my seat at about, you know, six o'clock in the morning for a 6.30 or 6.40 a.m. flight, and almost without fail, by the time they close the door, I'm going to close my eyes, and by the time we're taxiing, I'm basically asleep. Oh, I'll never miss the takeoff. That's I, I'm like a child when the, when the plane takes off. It still fascinates me to this day, but maybe by the time we bank, and certainly by the time the drink cart comes around, I'm out like a late. You and I are both flying this weekend. It's a uh, it's a two flight semifinal. Yeah, um, for us it is. I was trying to think: is it actually a two flight semifinal for the uh, uh, for the active teams? No. Uh, can Hopkins drive to Mount Union? Yeah, yeah, they can. Uh, Rowan could drive to Mount Union, so Hopkins can. Uh, Randolph Macon can drive to Mount Union, so Johns Hopkins can. Yeah, I put in, by the way, right before the playoffs started, I put in the Randolph-Macon 500-mile radius, and it basically was like everywhere. They could, I don't think they could quite get to Berry, but they definitely could have could have got to like Maryville Center, everyone in the middle in the Midwest, almost everyone in the Northeast. They had like 16 teams they could have matched up with in the first round. Well, and see, they got matched up with somebody that they could beat. Who knew? Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. And we're down to the final four for Shenandoah and St. John's and Trine and Wartburg. Wait, do you think I was talking about the playoffs? Yeah, that's happening too. I'm Pat Coleman, executive editor of D3Football.com, and we will talk about the final four Gallardi Trophy finalists later. But as we welcome in Keith McMillan, the focus is on what's on the field on Saturday, the final four football teams. And as we said on Monday, we've got three of the truly elite programs in Division Three in the Final Four. And then Johns Hopkins, which has only lost seven games the past five years, has played Mountain Union and Wesley to one-score playoff losses in the recent past. And it drubbed six-ranked Frostburg out of the playoffs in round two. So I'll say again that I think St. John should still be alive in this tournament somehow. But if you aren't jacked for UW-Whitewater at Mary Harden-Baylor and Johns Hopkins at Mountain Union, I'm not sure what else you could be asking for except for your favorite team in one of the Final Four slots. We've got staggered starts and national sports network coverage, for goodness sake. Staggered starts as in Johns Hopkins at Mountain Union at noon Eastern, UW-Whitewater at Mary Harden-Baylor at 2.30 Central Time or 3.30 Eastern. Those national sports network play-by-play people for these semifinal games are usually not as well-versed for these games as uh, perhaps the folks higher up the food chain who call the Stag Bowl are. Sometimes those games are a little bit ragged from an on-air perspective, but you can see how it goes on Saturday. And of course, this is key. These are the first games in which there are coaches' challenges and booth reviews of officiating calls. So that adds a layer that uh, at least three of the four coaches have dealt with before. 
Johns Hopkins, of course, is new to this level of play. So Jim Margraff will be getting a crash course in something and, and whoever's in the coach's box for him will have to provide good intelligence to the field. I assume that's how this works, right? I mean, I, they're not going to show these replays on the board and Jim Margraff is going to go, oh, I want to throw the flag or buzz the guys on this one. Someone up in the booth in the coach's box is going to be watching the feed on the monitor just like you and I would or you will if you're there. Yeah, he will have to have somebody in the box providing good intelligence. And we are going to make one smart Johns Hopkins people joke on this podcast, and that's it. <laughs> that, that was even unintentional. Go on. <laughs> so there have been some touchstone moments over the years when a program truly vaults itself into the national elite. Mary Harden Baylor winning at Mount Union in 2004. Wesley's 46-36 win in Belton against Mary Harden Baylor the following year. Whitewater emerging in those same playoffs. In later years, we saw St. Thomas join the Purple Powers alongside Linfield, Whitewater, Mary Harden Baylor, and Mount Union. We saw North Central fall a point short of a stag bowl in Alliance. Now Johns Hopkins has a chance to cross into a new stratosphere. Or, like many teams before, they can get kicked in the face figuratively at Mount Union and say, eh, I had a good run. The Blue Jays have a dynamic quarterback, stud running backs, and wide receivers. They nearly beat the Purple Raiders two years ago in the postseason. So, although they didn't win, and I don't know don't want to give them too much credit for a game they ultimately lost. They won't be in awe of the moment either. They also have one of the coaches in D3 with the most experience and the most perspective. So you'll enjoy getting to know Jim Margraff, quarterback David Tamara on company, win or lose. I'll definitely enjoy getting to watch them some more. I watched a little bit of that second round game against Frostburg. Uh, and since you guys had them covered, I did not watch the quarterfinal last week against RPI. I expect to be out at a Mary Harden Baylor tailgate for part of that game, but uh, the guys said they'd have the game on, so I'm hoping to be watching. The UMHB UWW matchup will basically be the opposite of that game, as these are teams who, of course, have played each other multiple times, have played in the semifinals multiple times, and have played each other in the semifinals multiple times. And not that you need more backdrop for a clash of the Crusaders who have been to the past two Stag Bowls and the Warhawks who went to nine and won six between 2005 and 2014, but these teams have a history of epic, memorable games. UW-Whitewater, however, has won all five. Dad gummit, would you indeed. In 2006 regular season, Whitewater returned the opening kickoff and uh, made that stand up in a 7-3 win. Pat, you and I called that game at Belton High School. Joel Munoz to kick off for the Crusaders and back deep for Whitewater. Jordan Wells and Neil Mertvicka and the kick is away. It is taken by Mertvicka at his own six going left to right here in the first quarter. Across the middle, the 15, 20, got a room straight up the middle. The 30, the 35, try to beat Munoz and he does. Across midfield, one man back deep, Kelvin Kirby chasing him. But Mertvicka is going to take it 94 yards for a touchdown. 94 yards straight off the bat, 6 nothing. That is huge for Wisconsin Whitewater here. Being on the road, having this, this, this long road trip, and not really knowing what to expect, getting that kickoff right away is just huge for them. And for Mary Hart and Baylor, they sort of just have to, have to let that go, chalk that one up to uh, being a little too jacked up and not following their assignments and try to get right back in this game. That's how long ago that was, Pat. The, the cathedral was just a twinkle in Mary Hart and Baylor's eye at that point. The teams met again in the 2007 regular season, and that was the least exciting of their matchups. Whitewater won that one in Wisconsin, 41-14. But they met again in the 2007 semifinals in a game that was 7 degrees. The field was frozen, and uh, Whitewater won that 16-7. That was the Justin Beaver team that went on to beat Mount Union in the Stag Bowl. That was their first national championship, and uh, Justin Beaver 
I remember talking to him after the game, and he said, man, if they didn't play Jarrell Freeman and that Mary Harden-Baylor defense, they didn't think they would have been ready uh, to beat Mount Union in the Stag Bowl. So that was a pretty significant one in Whitewater history. In the 2008 semifinals, they played again, and it was a close game in the first half, but there was some really strange wind down in Texas, and Whitewater pulled away in that one and won 39-13. And then in the 2013 semifinals, one of the ones that sticks in the craw of folks who find uh, Pete Fredenberg and his Mary Harden-Baylor coaching staff a little conservative. Um, Mary Harden-Baylor missed on third down, uh, shot into the end zone. I think the fullback dropped it. Yeah. And so maybe with about four minutes left, they kick a field goal. They're trailing 16-12. They kick a field goal to go down 16-15. They kick off to Whitewater. Whitewater converts a couple of first downs and wins that game by one point. That was the same day as the 41-40 Mountain Union North Central game that we talked about earlier. So these teams have a, a major history coming into this game, and I hate to, to talk so much about the past before we actually talk about the game they're going to play on Saturday, but I felt like that it was important to set that up. Indeed, but there's a lot of good past to talk about. The question is whether any of it is applicable, and Pete Fredenberg answered that question in Saturday's postgame news conference. Yeah, I mean, is there anything you can take from those games? Well, or sure. Not? There's. I don't know. I hadn't seen any any uh, uh, film on them, but the, uh, I would imagine that they're similar in style. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a new white, white water team and it's a new Crusader team. So um, none of none of that matters. That that history is just history, and uh, we are zero and five against them. Uh, but uh, um, we got a chance to to really learn from this game um, and get better. And I think that you'll see uh, see us do that. So we're, we're, we're knocking at the door. It's hard to believe that 2006 game you and I called was the first one, but that was what made it such an attractive matchup that you and I would fly from the East Coast to Austin, Texas and drive. But in 2006, you know, UW-Whitewater and Mary Hard-Baylor had each played in only one stag bowl. That's kind of also difficult to believe. Also a bit surprising that we haven't had one of these matchups since that 2013 game. This is going to be a little bit more like a reunion with, you know, Whitewater coming back after missing a couple of years or something like that. This is like the, the 10th year reunion where everybody comes back with their kids. Sort of. Look, Whitewater, from their perspective, they haven't been to a stag bowl since 2014. So for the, for the people on, the, on this roster, for Coach Kevin Bullis, who was on the staff, uh, on previous Stag Bowl teams, but wasn't the head coach at the time. And remember, Lance Leipold, he didn't just go to Buffalo by himself. He took defensive coordinator Brian Borland. And I think uh, five offensive coaches or five coaches left Whitewater to go to Buffalo. So Kevin Bullis had to rebuild the staff. And, and certainly there were times last season when they went seven and three where they thought they may never get to this point again. Certain people on this podcast thought they may never get to this point again. And here they are with a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance to um, vault back into the Stag Bowl. So for them, it's a pretty big deal. And for Mary Harden Baylor, champions in 2016, lost last season when when they were so close and, and, and just couldn't put any points on the board against Mount Union's defense in the Stag Bowl and, and then have been dominant this season. They obviously have a goal of, of getting back as well. So we talk all the time about how Ma Mount Union has this championship or bust mentality. Whitewater, I don't think, has it as much as they had it from 05 to 14, but certainly they're back at the place where they could, they're so close they can almost taste it and, and ready to be champions again. And I think Mary Harden-Baylor probably has a, a championship or bust mentality after being to the past two stag bowls. 
which one of us was the one that thought they would never get back to this position again? I mean, I wouldn't have brought it up if it was me. <laughs> no. But I, maybe I would have. Oh, maybe. I certainly other people would have, uh, regardless. Uh, you know what? We're uh, it, it's been great. I've been happy that this is uh, this is the way it's gone on. It's it's always funny when uh, people from a uh, a purple power think that you doubt them and need that for some sort of crazy motivation. Because I would think that, you know, playing in the national semifinals is motivation enough. Really, with all three of those programs, though, having been to all the campuses, been in the football building at. I've like, ever been in a football building at Mountain Union. I don't I even have. know if they have a they, dedicated football building. But it, they have a great indoor practice facility. It's really nice. I got the tour before you know before they stopped talking to me. I think the, I think the last time I went in a building at Mountain Union was the, when they had the uh, super brunch on campus. <laughs> and you'd go if, if you got there early enough. I'm to the point now where nothing is nothing is new to me, so I don't I don't get there early enough for the tour. I'll, I'll probably get there at a, at a, at eleven on Saturday. Uh, in any case, the, you you go to the campus, you see the history, the championships, banners, the trophies, the walnut and bronze. The uh, I mean, if you're in the in the uh, cathedral, there are pictures on the wall of Ladero Bailey throwing that underhand touchdown pass against Wesley as he was getting tackled. If you're in the football uh, building at Whitewater not even in the building, just at Perkins Stadium, you can see powered by tradition, national champions, and it's got the six years that they've won it on the wall. So I think that's pressure enough and that's uh, motivation enough to to just to be able to live up to what you came to any of those schools to do. When people committed to come to Johns Hopkins, they their goal is, hey, we'd like to win the Centennial Conference and then go take our best shot in the playoffs every year. Certainly their goal is not, we're going to be a stag bowl contender, but part of taking the best shot in the playoffs is if you can beat the best, you know, if you can, if you can play alongside the, the great teams and they really have done that more than once now, uh, two epic playoff games against Wesley, both lost by one score and one uh, against Mountain Union. You know, they, that program is ready to, to try to make this leap. We don't know how it's going to go on Saturday. It could be a seven point game, could be a 35 point game, could be an upset for the ages. We, it, it would be disingenuous for me to, to to pretend like I know how it's going to turn out, but they have an opportunity, and this program is not as much of an upstart as you might think. We'll talk about each of these games coming up in just a couple of minutes. We'll also have an interview. We'll talk a little bit about legacy and living up to a legacy, but I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is available for sponsorship where you could be reaching an audience full of decision makers. Wait, scratch that full of fans trying to travel to Shenandoah, Texas, right? And trying to figure out which hotel makes sense to stay in. Where am I going to have my pregame meal? Where am I going to have my postgame celebration? Or maybe my postgame, you know, crying in my beer or, you know, drown yourself in a steak and a big honking baked potato or something like that. That's what you have as a side, right? That's what I'm going to have. That's what you could do by sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. So if you have an idea for someone who needs to really reach this Stag Bowl audience, you know the deal. Drop me an email, pat.coleman at d3sports.com. You could DM us on Twitter. That's a thing. I'm just saying. And now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Joe Burtons, who is the WRMU play-by-play broadcaster for Mountain Union Football. Joe, thanks a lot for joining us. We're glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for so much to have me on. I really appreciate you guys having me on. 
I think that we met in the parking lot at Salem Stadium, and I know we've chatted uh, via Twitter a little bit. We've used some of your highlights, so uh, we uh, we're, we're definitely appreciative for uh, any conversation from uh, from Mount Union these days. So we're definitely thankful on this end as well. Um, how long have you been? So is this your senior year? How long have you been doing play by play for the Purple Raiders now for football? Uh, for football wise, I've been doing it for two years, but uh, this is my fourth year, uh, senior year. Uh, I've been doing uh, football broadcasts with them since uh, my freshman year, just being the sideline guy and then becoming a color commentator and then uh, getting the reins my junior season. So uh, I've been doing it for quite a while now. You have then watched up close and personal than this entire run, right? Uh, a championship in 2015 against St. Thomas, uh, loss in the semifinals in 2016. Uh, you know, this kind of that kind of road redemption tour uh, and the, the semifinal comeback in 2017. And there we're, now where the team is today, what can you kind of just take us a little bit through what it's been like to watch the how this team has evolved and progressed and that sort of thing? Oh, boy, it's been uh, a roller coaster, uh, to say the least. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you mentioned uh, 2015. Uh, 2015 just seemed to be uh uh, a year, as always, for Mount Union, dominating uh, full season, go 10-0 in the regular season, dominate throughout the playoffs. Uh, they crushed Whitewater in the semifinal, 36-6. to And, you know, they get to Stag Bowl and they become champions uh, uh, against a, a very good uh, St. Thomas team. And uh, it was uh, one of those years, if you look past 2015, it was a turnover. The, the sophomore season for me and just looking at where the team needed to be. There was a lot of young guys and a lot of new faces that needed to be uh, getting uh, more time out on the field. And uh, when they lost to John Carroll at home, I think it was an eye awakening moment, uh, not only for uh, the players, but just for the program, you know, that they are human, they can lose as well. So uh, through that, throughout the uh, course of that, that year back in 2016, uh, you look at uh, the first couple of games being on the road, obviously we're, taking on a team this season uh, in the semifinals that we saw back in 2016 in Johns Hopkins. And that was the second round of the playoffs. And that was a really good matchup. They went in the fourth quarter all tied up and Jared Ruth had a, an amazing catch to win that game uh, in the fourth quarter. And, you know, they were able to make a few uh, or make another win in the quarterfinal, get themselves to the semifinal to play Mary Harden Baylor. And uh, unfortunately they lost, but I'll tell you what, just talking with the players, uh, after that loss in 2016, I think that, you know, it sucks to say that they needed that loss, but that loss really triggered what this program is right now in the last two years. Uh, they dominated last year. They had that great 25-point comeback against Oshkosh in the semifinal uh, to get to Stag Bowl and winning in a thriller against Mary Harden Baylor, getting uh, the redemption. And then uh, this season, it's just it's going as follows. And, you know, we all look back at 2016 and uh, just seeing how this program has progressed in the last two years. And it uh, looks like that winning ways is back on track for uh, Mount Union. You're a senior. Obviously, there are a lot of guys who are seniors and a lot of guys on this in this senior class who have contributed for four years. You know, Jared Ruth, obviously, his freshman year was uh, back in 2014 because he spent a year hurt. But uh, mm-hmm. Lou Barry, it seems like, continues to have uh, excellent year after excellent year, which, um, you know, starting, a, starting back as a freshman. Tell us a little bit about you know, some of these guys and, you know, for that matter, you know, what personality and that sort of thing, the things that we don't get to see. Well, you know, for the guys that uh, you see on the defensive side, so guys like Lewis Berry, Austin White, Trevor Cox, uh, those guys in the safety position. I, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to where we all lived on the same dorm 
floor uh, our freshman year. And uh, I just remember Lewis Berry when he was a freshman and when he got his first moments playing varsity. And then when Trey Jones went down with an injury and Lewis Berry had the opportunity to play that defensive slot and he stepped up big, played in the Stag Bowl that year. Uh, I just remember, you know, uh, through the time, I mean, he was even when a fr- as a freshman, uh, he is one of the most humble, humbling players you would ever meet. Um, he's, you know, he's a God first type of guy, keeps faith uh, up there at number one. Um, and he just gets the job done. And he knows that, you know, how he performs, this is for his team. And uh, he never really lets the uh, limelight get in the way. I mean, he leads the program now in uh, interceptions for touchdowns with six. So, you know, any, I, I guess any player could uh, use that and uh, use that as a talking point, but no, he's just a guy that gets the job done on the, uh, on the field. And, uh, moves on. He's a guy that stays off social media. You don't see that much. Another guy that stays off is Austin White. Uh, Austin is a guy that he's very quiet and he gets the job done in the classroom and on the field. And uh, he's been phenomenal in the last, I mean, yeah, he's a senior, but he's got a lot of time his sophomore year and the last three years have been phenomenal for him. And Trevor Cox, another guy, he might be a little undersized, but boy, I mean, he is a phenomenal player as well. And he uh, is another guy in which he's humble. He gets the job done, and, and that's what you see a lot of these players. You know, um, they they understand that uh, what the focus is on hand. They know what came before them and how to keep, continue the winning tradition. And you know, I've had the ability this season to uh, every, each week interview these players, and you really just get uh, a kind of a feel that these guys are human. That you know, they they have really enjoyed their time at the University of Mount Union. They've discuss their successes but more importantly they're a team first uh athletes they do not boast on their their highlights and all that they want to just go out there and win as a team they can get as many all oac honors all conference honors but it's not going to matter unless they win the stag bowl you mentioned you know the players knowing what came before how much presence do say young alumni and then maybe older alumni from earlier in this run of 24 consecutive national semifinals do you know do guys your age as students get to see uh well as far as just uh what i've seen on the last few years i mean uh uh when i came in as a freshman trey jones was a senior and trey jones i mean he was a phenomenal athlete i really enjoyed watching him uh play uh, here when I came in and he really locked down that cornerback position. He was an All-American and uh, guys like that that really have paved the way for the new guys to come in. I mean, I think whenever I talk to Lewis Berry, he looks at a guy like Trey Jones and how much he helped him out uh, his freshman year. Uh, if you look on the defensive line, you had a guy by the name of Tom Lally uh, that is the sacks leader for mm-hmm. the program and uh, how much he helped a guy like Mike Vidal, and then how much Mike Vidal helped out the guys on the uh, defensive line now uh, with Andrew Resch and Ethan McComb on the ends. Of course, uh, you know, you have your guys that, you know, they they get done with their football career and they come back a year later or two years later and they come become a coach. And Adam Mahokey on the D-line is one of them. And he's really helped out those guys on the defensive line. And the D front, the defensive front, the front seven, really all around, they have uh, done a great job. Um, you do see an alumni presence. They do come back and they try to help out. Uh, I know Therese Scott, uh, who won the Stag Bowl back in 2015 as a quarterback, he's come back a few times to help out our quarterbacks. And as much uh, as winning the program does, it, it matters to have those guys, those alumni, to come back and help them help out the young guys to just get uh, a feel 
for what the tradition has here at Mount Union. You mentioned the quarterback position, and D'Angelo Fulford, of course, missed most of his freshman year with injury, had some you know, tumultuous stuff go on uh, down the stretch as a sophomore. This year, you know, you think uh, things are, are going to be looking pretty, pretty good for him, and then he gets hurt again you know, late in the regular season. And he's, it, it seems pretty clear, obviously, he's been playing hurt. He's been not fully up to his potential over the course of the last couple of weeks. What do you kind of expect to see out of him right now with what you've seen in the last couple of weeks in terms of health and mobility and that sort of thing? Uh, this is a week that he needs to step up. Uh, you know, there's been uh, moments, uh, big moments uh, in his career that, um, yeah, he struggled a little bit. The team has been able to carry him through uh, with the defensive side. Uh, but this is a huge game uh, for him to step up in the semifinal. Johns Hopkins is no slouch. And just uh, from seeing them two years ago, this is a great football team. And they're one of the most winning, winningest D3 schools in the last few years. And um, they're going to pose a great threat. They've got a great defense coming in. Um, but, you know, we look at a guy like Fulford and you want to see him uh, go ahead and throw for 350, you know, during the OAC time when he's playing in conference. You see him go for seven touchdown passes and he's breaking his career highs and all yards and all this but the thing is when it comes down to playoff time uh he knows how to step up yeah the last two weeks a little shaky uh, i think the uh second round uh, against center uh you saw a little bit of shakiness just because he got back into action i think he needed to kind of find more of a rhythm uh last week uh, you could blame the weather you can blame a great muhlenberg defense to kind of shut him down but i think fulford knows what uh what to do with the task at hand and uh, i'm expecting big things out of him on Saturday afternoon at Mount Union Stadium. And uh, it's not just falling on him. It's the guys around him. A guy by the name of Josh Petroselli has been almost uh, unstoppable yeah. uh, in this playoff run. And it's really going to help him out. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about Petroselli, especially how he uh, you know, how he played last week when getting inserted uh, in basically taking snaps. Yeah, so uh, back in the second week of the playoffs against center, we saw it a little bit in the second half uh, where Petroselli got thrown into the wildcat position. Um, I mentioned to or asked him after the game uh, during the post game interview, uh, you know, how did it feel being the Wildcat? Were you comfortable in that position? And he was when he was in Perry High School uh, as the ball, a young ball player. He played a little bit of quarterback, so it's not uh, too new for him. Uh, and he played a little bit against center, saw a lot of carries from the Wildcat spot last week in the win against Muhlenberg. And I mean, he's a guy that is just a, I mean, he is a hard-nosed runner, and he seems to be the type of guy in which once you get in the second half, he becomes stronger and faster. And he's a guy in which, you know, the defense, you want to go out there, you want to hit him, you want to get to him quick. But as the game progresses and he gets into the 25 to 30 carry amount, that defense is wearing down, and that's why he's able to break the amount of gains that he's able to. And to go over 200 yards in a playoff game, uh, that was just incredible to watch. Uh, it was a performance uh, to be, uh, you know, just memorized from the Mountain faithful for years to come. And uh, I think that this offense uh, dedicates a lot of thanks towards that running back because he has done a phenomenal job, but also the offensive linemen. I've also, I got to uh, make sure that I, I give credit to them. Uh, they have been a great force uh, this season. They haven't missed a beat uh, and that's really helped this team. 2015, of course, the Purple Raiders did their entire playoff run on the road last year, you know, first three rounds at home, but then on the road again for the national semifinals. So this program that had this run of many, many years in a row of home national semifinal games suddenly has a home semifinal for the first time in three years. Is there some extra excitement on campus for this? 
This, yeah, you know, I, it's funny that you asked that. I was uh, wondering that earlier today. I was asking myself while walking to class, and I looked into the stadium, and you see that uh, the camera bays are made out for ESPN3 and uh, getting ready for uh, the high traffic of people to come in and watch the semifinal round. And I was, I, I asked myself, I'm like, wow, I haven't seen this since, you know, my freshman year because the last two years, 2016 and 2017, they, they've been on the road. They've had to go go to – uh, to Texas to play Mary Harden Baylor, and they've got it. They had to go to Wisconsin to play Wisconsin Oshkosh. And uh, those past two years, it's been it's been a weird feel around campus that our team deep in the playoffs is traveling for a road playoff game. Uh, but now uh, this season, knowing that uh, you know we have the home uh, semifinal, a lot of people are uh, very excited for uh, what is to come against Johns Hopkins. Um, and the last time we had the home playoff game was against Whitewater, and that was. Uh, it, it was phenomenal uh, attended by the students. Uh, it's good to see uh, any students uh, come out uh, and have a big student section. It's going to be a blackout this Saturday night or Saturday afternoon, I should say. And uh, it should be a good one, really, at Mount Union Stadium. And I'm excited for the uh, the atmosphere and uh, everything that uh, follows with it uh, come Saturday. This past year for us has been an exercise in finding people who are not in the Mountain Union football program to talk with us about Mountain Union football. And what is nice to have Joe Mertens join us. Plus, we don't usually get the perspective of a classmate of student athletes on this podcast. Yeah, I thought his best perspective is as someone who's been there for four years, particularly these four, as he's experienced for what passes for ups and downs at Mountain Union. A championship, a year when they didn't win the championship, then a year when they came back and won the championship. And then this year, when there's still one giant challenge awaiting in Texas, even if the Purple Raiders show out this week. And to be quite honest, a glass half full person might say Mountain Union won last year with the comeback from down 35-10 at UW Oshkosh, and then the not-so-pretty uh, 12-0 win in the Stag Bowl. So they won with a, a lot of grit and 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 they stuck together and, and pulled out this game. And, and, and this, that was a team for the ages. A glass half empty view might be that the Mountain Union dynasty was totally on the ropes last year. And what a different landscape it would be if the Titans had finished the job. So there's still a bit to prove for Mountain Union, not really to, to validate a championship that they've already won, but to prove that the other elite teams in the division have not caught up to them like UW-Whitewater did for 10 years. And frankly, I'm not sure that they haven't, and that's what makes to this road to the Stag Bowl dramatic. There are no great boxing matches with just one good fighter, and there are no epic D3 championships for any of the remaining teams if they didn't have one another to go through to get there. We're up to our two key games to watch, and we'll start with the left-hand side of the bracket. Keith will uh, start us off with his keys to the game, and then I'll have my picks to click for each team in the game. So, Keith, take it away. Let's start with UW-Whitewater at Mary Harden-Baylor, since that's the better game. I think when you get to this level, the season-long statistical averages built up against Howard Payne and UW-River Falls are generally irrelevant. UW-Whitewater allows 2.1 yards per rush and has only given up five rushing touchdowns all season. UMHB's offense averages six yards a carry and rush for 54 touchdowns. UMHB's defense allows 2.1 yards per carry and only seven rushing touchdowns. Whitewater offense averages six yards a carry and rush for 41 TDs. So both teams have ridiculous numbers, but this is about matchups and perhaps just which team makes one more key play than the other. But statistically and stylistically, the teams are mirror images, so it's hard to predict, project which one will be able to impose its will. There are a couple of things that that stand out or some keys that either team could, could look to exploit to take advantage of. UW-Whitewater's pass defense is uh, a little bit suspect. They gave up a bunch of big plays against Bethel. Um, 40-yard catch, a 30-yard catch, a 28-yard catch. 
to Drew Larson, Joel Konecki, and Sam Gibbis. And they gave up big plays against St. Norbert as well. Samuel Staling had that 44-yard catch. He had two touchdowns. And there was uh, another wide receiver, Matt Galanopoulos, who had a 28-yard catch. So there are some big plays to be had through the air for Mary Harden-Baylor. The problem is, does is Mary Harden-Baylor interested in attempting those long passes? Are they going to try to get the ball to J Janelle Reed and TJ Josie down the field? Is Jace Hammock, is he healthy enough to try to get the ball down the field? I think the health of, of Mary Harden-Baylor's quarterbacks uh, is a big question going into this week. They didn't use Denarian Thomas against uh, St. John's, or they, they've used him a ton out of a um, – Again, not necessarily going to call it a, a wildcat package, but they bring in a, a basically a, a special package for uh, for Denarian Thomas, and then he's able to to run and throw a little bit out of that uh, for a quarterback. But as I said, the teams are stylistically and and statistically mirror images. UW Whitewater does the same thing with wide receiver Ryan Wisniewski, although I believe he was hurt a little bit last week as well. So, are the teams going to be able to utilize these special packages? Is Cole Wilbur going to do better than one for nine passing? Whitewater will have to throw the ball a little more, more than likely this week. They got out to that 23-0 lead early, and then pretty much against Bethel, we're just trying to play good defense and uh, and milk it away against uh, against Bethel and hang on to that thing. I think another standout thing for, for UW-Whitewater, eight seniors on defense and three juniors, so they have a very experienced defense. And, uh, you know, to be honest, the key beyond all those keys is, is not a very sexy one, but this may be about which team's offensive line can move the other team's defensive line and linebackers and which defense is the most sound tackling. You really need to take a close look at game video to parse that kind of stuff in advance. And we don't really have access to that, so we're going to learn it as we go. Yeah, Hammock got hurt late in the game last week throwing a block and uh, then you know kind of limped back out to uh, take a knee, I guess. I don't remember now, of course, the specifics of how the game ended after, uh, after Jefferson Fritz's interception. My pick to click first off for UW-Whitewater is Jacob Erbs. We talk a lot about Harry Henschler up front at the defensive end spot, and we talked a lot about Famous Hasty at the cornerback position for the Warhawks. Erbs is the key guy at the linebacker position for the Warhawks. If he has a big game, then I think that is going to go a long way towards containing Markeith Miller and maybe making the UMHB offense a little more one-dimensional, although that one-dimensional, if Hammock is healthy, is a pretty awesome one. Uh, my pick to click for, you would think I would pick something that I could say. My pick to click for Mary Harden Baylor is Aaron Sims. Last year, the crew made hay in the return game, and that included in the postseason. If they need a big return on Saturday, I'm guessing odds are it's probably going to be a punt return, and Sims is the guy, uh, along with K.J. Miller. They're really both the guys, but I wanted to talk about Aaron Sims. Yeah, K.J. Miller had a big return in the first Harden-Simmons game. So I think that's what, what starts to stand out at this level, too, is – because the teams are so good and so evenly matched when you're talking about Mary Harden, Baylor, UW, Whitewater, Mountain Union is these teams are going to need to get contributions from, from players further down the roster, not necessarily stars. You're going to need your glue guys. You're going to need your special teams guys to make big plays or to not give up big plays. Let's move it on over to the Mountain Union Johns Hopkins game. Yeah. Blue Jays coach Jim Margraff said an interesting thing, and I can't remember if it was on the podcast or Saturday in person, but he said, and I'm paraphrasing, that Johns Hopkins never goes into the game with a concrete plan of what it wants to do offensively. Some teams are heavily scripted. The Blue Jays are built to adapt. Now, of course, against Mountain Union, it's imperative get up to get off to a fast start, or rather not let them get off to a fast start, not get off to a slow start. But I'll be curious to see which parts of the Blue Jays' offense, and let's be honest, 
They scored 49, 58, and 37 in their three playoff games, twice in the rain. They've been able to run everything. I'd like to see which parts of that offense they're able to establish on Saturday. Read option and bubble screens are great against teams you're faster, smarter, and stronger than, but what happens when you aren't? Will David Tamaro be able to attack the sidelines against corners as crafty as Gabe Brown and Lewis Berry? It all bears watching on Saturday. Yeah, this will be interesting because presumably it's not going to be the weather potentially taking away elements of the Johns Hopkins offense. It's going to be the Mountain Union defense. And on the opposite side, if Mountain Union is still trying to work around not having wide receiver Jared Ruth and quarterback D'Angelo Fulford at 100%, it will try to establish the run. It did that well last week with Josh Petroselli, but their best advantage might be getting their athletes in space against those from Johns Hopkins. The first quarter will be fun to watch the two teams kind of feel each other out, assuming one doesn't jump right on the other. Maybe one or both teams feel they can establish the run. Maybe one or both tries to go ball control and avoid mistakes while luring the other into mistakes. The cool thing is there are a lot of ways this game can go, and we'll find out early how confident each team is in its chances and in its health. And you might be watching it from the sidelines anyway, so you'll probably get a really good up-close look at it. My pick to click for Johns Hopkins is running back Stuart Walters. I like this guy. He's been through a lot in his, uh, his time with the Blue Jays, and he brings a little bit of extra experience as an older guy coming back after some time off and has really kind of stepped in to be just about as prominent as he was before. John Carroll is the team that's had the most success against Mountain Union this year, and they did it primarily on the back of Kanganelli, the running back. So I'm really looking for the running game to be a big factor for Johns Hopkins, and I don't know how healthy Tyler Messenger is going to be. I do know that Stuart Walters is a uh, is a uh, is a solid to above solid to above average. What am I trying to say? He's a really good running back. We just didn't have a spot for him in the awards. My pick to click for Mount Union is Gabe Brown. He's the other cornerback for Mount Union. You, I'm sure you've heard of Lewis Berry. He's the senior starter on the other side. Brown is no slouch either, and I uh, look to him to be the key guy for the Purple Raiders. Yeah, Brown is the guy that that quarterbacks don't throw towards. Lou Berry is the guy that uh, that gets his hands on the ball all the time. Well, and so when you've got two pretty good cornerbacks, that's what do you do, right? You you pick your poison. Well, the thing about Johns Hopkins is they they tend to spread teams out. Uh, they like to spread it out to run, so they'll go four wide and uh, and then you know get a lane for Stuart Walters. But they also have more than one good wide receiver. So if you see Gabe Brown matched up with Luke McFadden, you may see Lewis Berry on Ryan Hubley, guy who has 78 catches, including 22 in the postseason. He had 10 against uh, RPI. So you'll see you'll see you need more than one good DB because Johns Hopkins is, is pretty talented across the board. Tamaro versus that defensive front will be an interesting uh, matchup as well. That doesn't really fit into a pick-to-click. That's kind of a key matchup, and that is not my area of expertise. I'm still trying to learn stuff about A-gaps and that sort of thing. Well, not really. I, and I also know who the Y and the Z are, but uh, that'll be something that maybe you can uh, pass along for us on Twitter early in the game and see how that looks. Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, the line play is not just the the hardest thing to evaluate because I play defensive back and, uh, you know, I can see coverages and, and still pick up tips based on where wide receivers line up and formations and stuff. I don't, it doesn't come to me as easily on the line, but I also think it's just harder in general to figure out how a line from the Centennial Conference is going to match up against players from Mountain Union. So we'll, we'll see pretty early on if they're able to get a little bit of push. And, you know, it may be something as simple as as getting a an early first down or Mountain Union tacklers rallying to the ball 
when uh, when when Stuart Walters maybe breaks a tackle off one guy, you know, three other guys are there to, to wrap him up. That'll be some of the the early indication. But I, I think, you know, I think I probably say this time to time um, when you get to this level, if you if you're able to watch the game from the lines out. Right. Most of us watch it and we just follow the ball. If you're able to just watch the game from the lines out, it'll uh, it'll clue you into uh, to how things might go. And I think that's true of both games on Saturday. That's right. You played defensive back and I played second base in outfield. So there we go. There is, of course, one more game this weekend. That's the Aztec Bowl. Now, this isn't the Aztec Bowl we used to have, though, where a, a team of Division Three All-Stars, true All-Stars, made the trip to Mexico and often had plenty of success against a Mexican Collegiate League's champ. Lately, though, this game called Aztec Bowl and the somewhat higher level Tazón de Estrellas have had a different set of Division Three players. You get multiple players from a, the same team, not a true set of uh, All-Stars nationally, and the results have been less impressive. The fact is... Neither of those games lives up to the name that they've inherited. And they're a fun trip for the players, but they pay to play. And there are probably better pay to play games. Um, we have talked about pay to play games before. There's no you know, true non pay to play game anymore. So people are kind of left trying to decide what it is that's a priority for them when trying to choose a postseason all-star game. Someone came to came to me for advice as to which one their kids, uh, you know, who were being considered should consider going to he sent me three names of all-star games i had never even heard of one of them uh one of them i had uh you know had seen some kind of strange uh you know signings of players from back in august which i thought was weird and then the third one was one that seemed to have a relatively reasonable uh impression of from previous years and that made that decision easy but i can't imagine it's easy if you've got all of these different things to choose from and you're paying a range of 500 to 800 dollars for the uh for the prestige sure i mean i i think if you just go in with realistic expectations that basically this is an opportunity to play one more game get a few days away from campus and maybe hang with another guy or two from your team or meet some people from some other teams and just have fun playing tackle football one last time because for the uh, you know you may have dreams of of playing in a, in another league and i certainly don't want to poo-poo those but um for a lot of us this is it you know you can play flag when you grow up and you know basketball and if you're a baseball player you can play in this local softball league but there's no real tackle football and there certainly isn't the everyday practice once you get out here in the real world unless you want to play semi-pro but that's another story so just go into it with with an open mind and and again they sometimes will pitch a lot of great opportunities you may get seen by scouts and not saying all that stuff doesn't happen but um, just, you know, the the promises that are made, take those with a grain of salt. Yeah, right. If you're going to something with the solely with the idea of being seen by scouts, you might be disappointed. So pick something that is, you know, in a place you want to go to or with guys you want to go with or with a coach that, uh, you know, maybe you have uh, respect for or considered playing for or something like that. That'd be my advice as the baseball guy. All right. We talked about the final four of the Gallardi Trophy very briefly. Uh, we had, a, of course, a 28-minute a reveal show on Thursday afternoon. Did not expect it to be 28 minutes. So we had a, a nice three-minute highlight package at the beginning. And then we talked a lot about four guys. We talked about these four. Hayden Bowserman of Shenandoah, Jackson Erdman of St. John's, Lamar Carswell of Trine, and Matt Sasha for Wartburg. You and I... And Adam Turr each kind of compared our ballots, and I we found it kind of interesting that there was not a whole lot of consensus among the three of us, aside from you know like one or two guys. 
yeah, I hope Adam's comfortable with us talking about this because we we all had Erdman as the number one guy. And then the guys we had, there were the guy you had in the two slot was in somebody else's 12 slot. And I there were someone I voted for um at the very bottom that was in one of your guys' top three. So we said this on the last podcast. Even if Erdman is the guy, I have no idea who's going to be two, three, and four. Hayden Bowserman, huge numbers for Shenandoah. They were in the uh they were very competitive in the in the always competitive ODAC uh this season. Matt Sasha, a guy who's been a Gallardi Trophy finalist before, led Warburg to the playoffs. And then uh Lamar Carswell, who try and ran a, a fair for D3, he ran a fairly big campaign for him, right? Tweeted his stats out every week and tagged us in it. Um and a guy who probably I mean, had great numbers all season and who was looking great for for uh, the award or at least to be considered for it until trying went out in the first round of the playoffs, mm-hmm. losing 31 to seven to St. Norbert. That certainly affected the way I felt, um, you know, a running back maybe is only as good as his offensive line. And it only uh, if the offensive line doesn't play well, then, you know, he doesn't have a good day, but, but that's also what props him up as well. So I, I, I find um, I found it hard, or not, or maybe interesting is probably a better way to put it. Like, uh, who was two, three, and four in this? And there was a, a tweet that I sent out on Thursday where I said I'd, I'd have voted for for Lewis Berry, uh, Markeith Miller, mm-hmm. and frankly, David Tamaro at, at this point is somebody I would consider for this award. Although I think middle of the season when um, Johns Hopkins was a one loss team and, and, and wasn't quite lighting it up the way they are now. Um, you know, maybe when the nominations were due, he wasn't as much of a, of a thought, especially since he is uh, he's not a senior, but um, there are guys right now that are playing excellent that uh, aren't, that weren't even on the ballot. And then there are certain, we, as we've had in uh, the conversation we've had in previous weeks where a lot of the guys who looked like they had a chance to win this award didn't do so hot in the early rounds of the playoffs. And, and I think that made it tough for voters to settle on the same two, three, four, five guys. But it was pretty clear that, that Jackson Erdman was, was the guy. Still three games left to go. And uh, you and I and the rest of our crew will be doing kind of the uh, live debate on air uh, after the game on Friday of next week to say who will be the uh, offensive and defensive players of the year. Those two guys you just mentioned, Will, will, I think, be very heavily weighed in the discussion, barring some kind of really bizarre collapse over the course of the next two weeks. And that's what's different, I guess, about about the uh, Offensive and Defensive Player of the Year rather than the Gallardi Trophy. The Gallardi Trophy can't factor in the Stag Bowl, right, because it's given out okay. the week of the, the Stag Bowl. is awarded uh, at the site, or at least it has been in the past. And um, we get the opportunity of finalizing that decision in the post-game show from the Stag Bowl. So, you know, if, if whatever, I'm just making up something, if Nate can make rush for 200 yards in the Stag Bowl, well, that would, that might tilt us toward him or, you know, uh, Jake Kumro had a, a, the outstanding Stag Bowl that year that Whitewater won 52, 14. And, and that may have tilted us in that direction defensively because some defensive spots don't have as many statistics to, to rely on. A guy that really stands out, dominates a game, a Harry Henschler. You know, if, if Whitewater yeah. beats Mary Harden Baylor and Mountain Union in the Stag Bowl, or, or, or they beat Josh Hopkins in the Stag Bowl, and Henschler has a great game, 
maybe he's the, the defensive player of the year. You, you don't know. And, and that's, it's still up for grabs no doubt. In, in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I am not meaning to say that it is at all locked in because this is just you and I spitballing this. We haven't, uh, this is not our formal discussion, right? And there are, there are still games of course left to be played on the show on Thursday, we talked about uh, Matt Sasha, and he's the guy, of course, who was a, a finalist last year, so he was in Salem. We got to chat with him, got to get to know him a little bit. You know, if you look at his 2018 numbers compared to his 2017 numbers, it may not look as impressive to you. Um, you know, of course, the team was 8-3 and three this year instead of, I believe, 12-1 and one last year. I know they made it to the quarterfinals, and, uh, you know, but Sasha lost a ton of his supporting staff, supporting staff, the rest of the players around him. There were a lot of seniors on that team last year, and he was uh, uh, coming back and having to kind of break in a new group of skill position players. They didn't have the running game they had last year. They didn't have the same protection up front, so Seisha didn't run for as much. He threw a few more picks. He threw much more often. Uh, he threw for a higher percentage. Uh, I really thought that Matt Seisha did a better job this year than last year, even though his numbers, as you look at them, might not support it. Well, there's so many intangibles, too, that that you can't necessarily factor in, and, and it's tough for voters to see all those things. You know, Joe Germanario didn't have the same supporting cast this year that he had last year, particularly with the offensive line uh, turning over a, a lot of players. I think, too, that remember the Gallardi Trophy – even though the J Club has specifically said to us, pick the best football player and use the 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 other things that exemplify what an outstanding young man is, the community service, the grades, to break ties or you know sort sort things out when it's close. The J Club has been very specific that they want the best player to get this award, mm -hmm. and you know they're to some degree they're hamstrung by who which schools nominate who or whom, but um. I think still it's such a big part of the award is, is finding out that these guys, 13 semifinalists, now down to four finalists. This is going to sound so cliche and ridiculous, but I'm going to say it anyway because I believe it's true. There are no losers when it comes to the Gallardi Trophy. Like These guys are all going to be something great in life. I, I really do believe that. They're the kind of guys you know you wish you had 50 of them on your team not not all playing the same position, but you know what I mean. Like they're they're uh, they're just the the kind of guys you 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 want your your other players to emulate. And so um, to hold thirteen of them up to the light, to hold four of them up to the light, and ultimately to pick one guy to win this award, um, we're we're you and I because we're kind of obligated to analyze this from the most honest perspective that we possibly can. We can sometimes say things you know, critical things like you didn't not, you don't have all the best players necessarily up for this award, or if the award was given out later, certain guys would have played their way into it. That's all understandable, but it's not a slight on, on the 13 or the four, because the, the, the people who are nominated for the Gallardi trophy tend to be pretty outstanding young men. One more thing on this before we move on to the rest of the podcast, there's of course, always this situation in a in an award like this, whether it's the Heisman or the Gallardi Trophy, where it is just really difficult for a de defensive player to get any traction in, in this sort of uh, circumstance. I really thought uh, that Harry Henschler should have been in the final four. 
I'm not going to, you know, go and name a name of person who I would take off because that's, you know, like you said, we don't want to put somebody, we don't put somebody on that kind of list necessarily, but that's the guy who I would have had up there. Uh, and you know, and it, and the fan vote was, uh, the fan vote was right on, or at least whitewater people showed up. I really thought that, uh, Henschler is a guy who should have been in the final four. Yeah. And it's pretty tough because, um, he had a 15 sack year last year and those are hard numbers to live up to. Um, and then they didn't play like a lot of big time passing offenses, um, for late, late part of the season and early in the playoffs. So there wasn't an opportunity for him to have one of these huge games that if voters and you don't know how deep they go into the numbers or how they, how far they read into the packets, sometimes they're just looking at the overall season numbers, but for folks like you and I and Adam who kind of live this and we, we put greater weight on their bigger games, there just weren't a lot of opportunities for him to have one of these huge standout games because Oshkosh wasn't really dominant offensively this season. UW Platteville tailed off at the end of the year. Lacrosse was pretty good, but Whitewater played that game earlier in the year. And then the playoff games, Eureka, St. Norbert, and, and Bethel are all really ground-based teams. So for a guy who who got on the radar by being a, a great pass rusher, just weren't a whole lot of opportunities for him to shine. We take one cla- uh, last look back at quick hits from last week. Uh, Keith and I, uh, each four for four. Who else? Greg was four for four. Adam was four for four. Uh, Ryan took a flyer on Bethel winning, and uh, that did not come through for him. Frank took RPI over Johns Hopkins, and that did not come through either. So I guess we uh, we gained a game on Ryan uh, out in the lead there. I actually forgot to tally it up this week. But I think you get to this week and next, and I think you could see some split, some split picks. Yeah, I think so too, and that's a, that's a certainly a possibility. That would be great because that would mean that we are expecting a really good semifinal and a really good stag bowl. Look, we've had a couple great upsets in the postseason so far. Um, but we haven't had outside of the Mary Harden Baylor John, uh, St. John's game. We haven't had too many amazing games. I'd like to see one. Will you get to see one? Will I get to see one? Well, you get a great game. You get a great game. We, let's, let's get them all. All oh, get great games. And that was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 230, released on December 7th, 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the weekend. One note, December 7th of 2018, do a Google search on when Willamette went to war. You need to be able to know how to spell Willamette in order to do so. There's a great story on our site from several years ago about uh, the Willamette football team, which was in Hawaii on the day Pearl Harbor was attacked. Great story. I will try to remember to tweet it, but uh, you should go read it. And, you know the rest of our coverage if you like our podcast please consider rating it in apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify you know fred's podcasts.edu or wherever you get podcasts because that will help other football fans find it you can leave comments on the blog page yeah i made it a edu this time the executive producer of the around the nation podcast is pat coleman production assistance provided by dave McHugh. our theme music is by dj mentos you can find him at DJMentos.com. 
Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr and Frank Rossi. Even though they weren't in this show, they've been in this show for, uh, you know, all season. So uh, we thank them once again. Also thank our guest, Joe Mertens, for his time on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation, um, D3Football.com, and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. You could follow Keith around on Saturday in Alliance, Ohio. That would be pretty creepy. You could do the same to me in uh, Belton, Texas on Saturday, and it would be just as creepy. And maybe just follow on Twitter from a safe distance or a comfortable distance. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to get security all riled up, right? Right. Alrighty, I guess I got to do some quick, quick hitting. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.